This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Julian Morrow. Welcome to The Roundtable. Yes, this week on The Roundtable, we're looking at learning from home as a school student in the post-lockdown world. The pandemic, of course, prevented kids all over Australia and around the world from attending schools for long periods. Before the pandemic, though, homeschooling in Australia was already on the rise. What's happened since the era of COVID lockdowns ended? And what do we know about how students and parents fared with at-home education during the pandemic? We'd love to hear from you on that question. You can text in to the number 0418 226 576 or text using the ABC Listen app. Uh, Should Australia's education system be offering students more flexible learning now that we're through the crisis periods of the pandemic. A World Bank review of remote learning during the COVID-19 period found that the emerging evidence about the effectiveness of remote learning was mixed at best, but it also said that the experience suggests possibilities for reimagining how education can be offered and enriched in coming years. Joining us on the roundtable today are Michelle Morrow, uh, no relation, but Michelle is uh, uh, someone who homeschooled her four children in New South Wales without the internet, and she's also the founder of myhomeschool.com. Welcome, Michelle. Hello, Julian. Great to have you. We're also joined by Fiona Webster, who's the principal of uh, Virtual School Victoria, basically an online school where qualified teachers, not parents, run the curriculum. Fascinating stuff. Welcome, Principal Fiona Webster. Good morning. Great to have you. And we're also joined by Dr. Rebecca English, a former English teacher, now an education researcher at Queensland University of Technology. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Now, uh, Michelle Morrow, I understand that at one stage you had four children under the age of six uh, and you decided to homeschool all of them, which is an astounding decision. Um, uh, but you've, you've all come through it pretty well by the sounds of things. Could you tell us why you made that decision and what sort of reaction you got at the time when um, you, you made such a big call? Uh, well, we just sort of decided to homeschool for a couple of years because we'd read a bit of information that said, you know, it's better to start school later than early and, you know, those sort of Norwegian and Swedish studies where they say children start at seven. So we had that sort of idea and so we started and then it was just so successful that we kept going and uh it, for 18 years, we, we kept homeschooling our kids. Two of my children never went to school and uh, two of them had bouts in school. And uh, was it a experience that you'd say all your kids look back on um, fondly and happily now? Yes, I would say so. I mean, one the son who went to school, um, the oldest, because I felt like I, I couldn't cope um, <coughs> with his... He, he was quite smart. Um, he definitely said that he liked going to school um, when he was in the high school years, although I had to sort of really coax him into it uh, because he, he said he found out he was smart and liked the competition. So, and he's a doctor now. So, um, he was just 
um, really thrived in that competitive environment. And what was it like for you, Michelle? Did you have any uh, any background or preparation for taking on the task of educating your your kids at home? Um, how did it evolve over the years? Well, not really. I mean, I was a nurse, and I'd you know gone to university, and I I was a nurse educator for a period, so I sort of felt confident. Um, you know, that that I probably had the skills to teach kindergarten. And then, you know, I thought, oh, kindergartens, how hard is that? First class, yeah, I reckon I can do that. So it sort of grew on me. It was when I got to high school, um, that's when I started to feel like, oh, this is getting a bit hard. And the maths was... I mean, I was okay at maths at school, but I just didn't like doing it. Um, and so I, I was losing a bit of confidence then. Um, but, you know, I regained that with the subsequent children, but um, I r- did struggle a little. Yeah, well, yeah, look, I'm sure <laughs> everyone has good and bad days, whether no matter which uh, side of the classroom they're on. That's really interesting, Michelle. Thanks very much for sharing those experiences uh, with us. Uh, Fiona Webster, could I come to you now? Um, could you tell us a little bit about virtual school Victoria and I suppose also how it differs from homeschooling in terms of the remote learning model as opposed to homeschooling. Sure. So Virtual School Victoria is uh, the state's, um, it's the state government school. Uh, we have just, uh, we had just over 6,000 students enrol with us this year. So we run from foundation, which is called different things in different states. So some people might know it as kinder or reception, mm. but in Victoria, we call it foundational prep. And we go all the way through to year 12. We've got an incredible history. Um, the school started in 1909 as the correspondence school. And then we moved to distance education model. And now we're virtual school Victoria because it more accurately reflects what we do because we're predominantly a uh, an online school. Uh, so we teach the state curriculum. We have qualified teachers. We work really closely with parents to support their students. And I guess that's the main difference between, well, it's not the only, it's not the main difference, but it's one of the key differences mm. between homeschooling and, and virtual schooling is that it, there is a teacher there who's working with, with the parents. Really close relationship between the teachers and the parents in the primary years. And then there's um, a gradual increase in independence as they move through the um, stages of adolescence. And you referred to the the sort of lineage of correspondence uh, education and those sorts of things. Are mm. the is the student body of virtual school Victoria predominantly in remote and, and regional areas of the state? No, not anymore. And that was one of the key reasons for the change change name. Mm is that we have many, many students who are in metropolitan Melbourne, for example. Some of those kids are in another in a regular school and they're just doing one subject with us, but a lot are enrolled with us because of um, social and emotional conditions, which um, in particularly anxiety, depression, school refusal, which means that they, they can't access um, the face-to-face setting in the way that their peers are. Yeah. And and what are the the trends in terms of the number of enrolments at Virtual School Victoria? What was it looking like before the pandemic? And do you have a read yet on how that sort of mass experience of uh, remote learning, uh, and particularly in Victoria um, and Melbourne, uh, might have changed people's approaches to things? 
Uh, yeah, well, in 2019, before the pandemic, we had uh, 4,524 students enrolled. Um, and that's total rather than engaged all at the one time. Mm. And this year it's some um, 6,000. So just this year alone, we had an additional 500 students. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And, and, and when students start with virtual school, Victoria, do they, do they tend to do like, like the whole run all the way through to, to graduation or is it, you know, a, a, a sort of shorter term thing for some? It's usually a shorter term um, proposition. Mm. We have yeah, very few students who go, there are some, but very few who go all the way from foundation to year 12. Uh, for, for more students, and we actually consider it a success if students particularly those who have social-emotional conditions, mm. if they can go back to a regular school to be with their peers. Uh, but uh, clearly, and I think this is what Michelle's been touching on too, the regular school environment isn't for, for all kids. And I like to think that there's the right school for everyone. And for some students, that's virtual school Victoria, and for some it might be homeschooling. Hmm. Uh, let's move on to you, Rebecca English. Could you give us a bit of a snapshot of how school learning from home looked in Australia before the pandemic? Who did it? What the reasons for it was? And then maybe your sense and, and to what extent there is data about how things have changed since those periods of really intense uh, lockdowns and, and mandatory learning from home. Certainly. Thank you, Julian, for raising this important and very, I think, very interesting issue. Prior to the pandemic, particularly around homeschooling, numbers were growing. What we know of the numbers were growing because of the way that different states and territories register what they call homeschooled students or home educated students. It's really difficult to know just how many there were. So in Queensland, for example, in 2012, when I started researching home education and why parents choose it, there were about 900. But earlier this year, I spoke to the home education unit, the section of the education department that is you know, involved with registering and managing home educated parents. Uh, young people, they argue that there are about 8,500 home educated students now. Now, a big chunk of those went up during the pandemic. So while the numbers were growing steadily prior to the pandemic, the pandemic was really like a shot in the arm to the home educated. And mm. I think that's really interesting. And as well, all of the distance education schools in Queensland have also noted huge growth in their numbers, as Fiona said in her own experience in her school. So we have a, a public distance education school in Queensland, but we also have loads of private distance education schools as well because of the way that our state laws operate. That's really interesting. Um, Rebecca, mm -hmm. what sort of data and research is there in terms of how to measure the success of learning from home? I think Fiona touched on a really interesting point, and it's that sort of social-emotional issue that faces young people in schools that causes them to not want to go and for their parents to find themselves in a position where they're either home-educating or distance-educating that young person. I think the really interesting thing in terms of this choice is that unlike sort of if everyone goes to school, they might all go to the same state school or all the children in the family might uh, all go to a private school, maybe the boys go to a boys' school, girls go to a girls' school. With home education, there tends to be, you know, maybe a child will be home educated and there might be two other children in the family and they'll go to school or two might be home educated and one might be distance educated. It's really a very sort of... Uh, 
I don't know, fluid system, shall we say. So it's a really different kind of experience and a a different choice making to how parents uh, would choose in mainstream. And increasingly, we see children who are home educated and distance educated because they have anxiety at school or because they suffer from depression or because they are, um, they identify as being on the autism spectrum and find that noise in the classroom, that constant masking, really difficult and it overwhelms them and so they're much happier at home. That's really interesting. Uh, Michelle Morrow, from the sounds of things, it it wasn't things like anxiety um, that were driving the decision in your family uh, to homeschool originally. But as I mentioned also, you're you're the founder of myhomeschool.com. Could you tell us about that? And I'd be particularly interested to know whether your clientele has the the similar sort of motivation that we've just heard um, from uh, Rebecca and Fiona. Uh, Well, um, I think that it's a mixed bag. Uh, So we have about 3,000 students on our books uh, from around Australia and I would say that it's probably a half-half division and it's very hard for people to know the reason people are homeschooling because it's all anecdotal because there's no actual record keeping of it. I mean, we just know from when someone gets registered and then they might tell their um, the registering body why they're choosing to do it, but there's no actual, you know, data on it that I know of anyway. Rebecca might know. Um, no, it's not really. I think, I think some states do collect data, Michelle, but not everybody does. So Yeah. And so I think there's two sort of groups. There's, the, there's the sort of the proactive parents who've made it a parent choice to do it, and that would be me. Um, We just wanted to do that. Um, We just thought it was the best option for our kids. And there's lots of parents that are making that choice. They they feel that they want to set the culture of their family and they might want to travel. One of my friends, you know, she did six months in Australia and then six months in Italy um, because her her husband had a, um, a bike riding business where they, like, you know, did, mm. you know, yeah. I don't know, ran tours over there. Um, so there's all different reasons. And then there's a huge body and we usually see them in the high school years or in, you know, year five and six, but usually high school where it's for those reasons that Rebecca stated, the anxiety and uh, stuff like that. But there's definitely a large body that are not homeschooling because, you know, they've got special needs. And I think that's a bit of a fallacy out there. And I think that the parents who... Um, choosing to homeschool because of a a sort of a reactionary result. They didn't usually want to homeschool in the first place anyway and they feel like it was their only option and that's Mm. why they often go into um, public school options and things like that because they actually don't want to plan the lessons. They're not sort of that keen on educating their kids. They just know that they've got to do it because they want the, you know, the best outcome for their kids. We've had one text in from Mark who suggests that homeschooling is growing because um, many parents have lost confidence in um, teachers and Mark's suggesting lost confidence in the teaching of the traditional three R's. Um, Michelle Morrow, is that something that you sense from your clientele? Not really. Mm, Uh, I mean, I think sometimes that someone will say, oh, you know, during lockdown, I just found they were so behind in this subject or that subject and and uh, so I want to catch them up. So that that was definitely something that we did here. But <clears throat> I, I do think that 
some parents maybe aren't that enamoured with some of the curriculum and they have ideas. But as I said, most parents don't want to home educate their kids. Certainly so a big they, challenge to take yeah, on. So um, a special person, well, not a special person, but a special personality mm. that is keen to educate. Maybe they would have been teachers in there, you know, as another choice. Um, and they really like it and they're enthusiastic about it. Mm. So, Th- Thanks, Michelle. I'll come back to you, uh, Fiona Webster. Um, I'm mindful of the, the fact that you've described some of the reasons that um, students might uh, enrol in virtual school Victoria, but I wondered what you could tell us about um, the school's sense or, or how it measures effectiveness um, of the provision of teaching, um, you know, f- remotely, um, particularly given the advances in technology. Oh, there's a number of ways, and one of them I I did mention um, in terms of um, fitting back into education yes. systems. So, so going back to regular school or going on to university, um, and the success rates there, which are particularly given the models uh, that are being used in universities now, it's a it's a really good preparation for students, which is something that had started before the pandemic in the tertiary area as well. So, so that, uh, that post, um, post-school engagement um, is really important. And it's not just the, the academic area, but also uh, many um, professions, many vocations require technology now. So it is a really good preparation uh, for kids uh, moving into a range of different areas. So there's those sort of aspects. So for example, um, our last year, our um, highest performing student in the academic sense uh, had an ATAR of 99.4. So, so there's those mm. um, very sort of specific measures. But then there's kids who go on to do all sorts of amazing other things. Um, and we've seen recently um, Chloe Hayden, who's a, an actor um, who was enrolled with us for a number of years having a um, great success in the latest um, iteration of Heartbreak High. So there's a lot of different yeah. um, different ways, um, that you, different successes um, that we see with our students in different areas of life. Rebecca English, um, based on your research, what are mm-hmm. some of the potential pitfalls or negatives associated with students predominantly learning through the remote model? I think the biggest issue that is often brought up is that it's women's work to home educate. I mean, you know, you've got Michelle on today. She's a woman. I I, I gather, I, I assume that her partner probably helped, but mostly it falls to women to do this. So there are short, medium and long term impacts on families when they make this choice. And I think the short-term impact is the loss of possibly the woman's full-time wage or, you know, she has to drop back to part-time or both partners drop back to part-time. So there is a short-term hit to your financial situation. But I think, you know, medium and long-term, that has implications in the local community for how much money you can spend, but also in terms of superannuation. Can I actually go back, please, Julian, to something that Michelle said about... um, 
who chooses this. My research doesn't actually agree with Michelle. So when I look at home educators, I um, I classify them as either accidental or deliberate. So the deliberate home educators are the ones she was referring to in, in my work. They're people who have always actively decided that they were going to choose that. Perhaps they're a religious family who doesn't like what is taught in mainstream schools, and they may also choose religious distance education schools as well. Or they may be some of these, you know, hardcore off-grid types who do not want to be um, part of a schooling system and don't believe in the institutionalisation of family life. But I think the greatest growth that we've seen, and I think really when you look at the growth, it has been in this second cohort, this accidentals. So most of the people that I meet in my research have tried school at some point. Maybe um, they've tried one school, often they've tried two or three schools, and that really hasn't worked for their child. So they have found themselves home educating or distance educating because they just felt they had no choice. And so for them, that ties back in with this you know, disadvantage in a way that for most of those women who are making this choice, they have worked and have had a job. So it is a real hit to their income. So mm. I mean, that's just what my work has found. You know, Michelle has a different audience. Yeah, no, that's, for me. that's interesting. That the World <laughs> Trade Organization uh, report on remote learning during COVID uh, focused on, or said that there needs to be three complementary and critical things for remote learning to be effective: effective teachers, suitable technology, and engaged learners. Um, mm. And that first question of effective teachers seems particularly pertinent then if uh, a large part of the cohort, Rebecca English, are turning to it not because they think, oh, I, I, I really want to, you know, educate my kids and I think I'm going to be um, the best educator for them, but a sense that they don't have um, any alternatives. What, what sort of supports are there to try and help parents in those situations to become effective teachers, even if it's not a circumstance that they uh, chose as a first preference? Look, I think that um, there are lots of organisations like Michelle's that offer, you know, a service to parents that they can purchase. I think that's part of it. And when I look at, you know, how home educators go over a lifespan, what we often find is that they'll start off really structured. So maybe they'll start off in a distance education school and then withdraw because they feel more confident in their capacity. Mm. Or they will purchase a service like Michelle's. There are many others on the market that you can also purchase. Um, there are huge numbers of Facebook groups, which I monitor as part of my work, that offer lots of advice and support to parents, particularly around reporting. So every year in each state and territory and the requirements are different, but parents have to report back what the child has learned in that preceding year and to show in Queensland, you have to show progress and you also have to show a high quality education. And really that's the kind of benchmark for your child. So I think there's lots of support services and there's lots of people supporting people. And I think too, as your confidence grows, I think the really interesting point, particularly around home education, which makes it really dis different from distance education, is that you never become a teacher as a home educator. I've never spoken to a home educating parent who thought of themselves as their child's teacher They've always been that child's parent. And what they've done is helped their child facilitate their learning in areas where they needed to learn. They don't ever think of themselves as actually teaching their child. I'll come back to you on that, Michelle Morrow, in just a second. But Fiona Webster, I just wanted to see if you've got any thoughts in particular on the relationship with parents and its importance, even when you're in the remote learning model where the actual teaching is done by um, a remote teacher. I think it, it can put some significant pressures on the relationship between the child and the parent mm. because it, it's quite a different dynamic. 
Uh, we also do have um, support programs for parents. So we have a, a leading teacher with responsibility for for family and um, community engagement so that um, we get support between the parents as well because it, it is a very different experience for them being at home uh, with, their, with their students learning and sometimes, you know, trying to get them to, you know, to engage with, with the work, mm. um, particularly if they're facing a range of different um, challenges. Uh, so, yeah, so it can have an impact. Um, and the parents, uh, the teachers are just hugely um, respectful of the, that relationship between the parent and the child because it's so significant and important. No but giving them some support to, as Rebecca said, to facilitate the learning because, you know, the, there are courses and we also do have live classes so that the kids can interact with each other as well as um, within the home and just with a teacher because that peer collaboration and dis discussion is so important um, for kids as they're growing up. Thanks so, very yeah. much, Fiona. Mm. Um, and I'll come back to you, Michelle Morrow. You alluded to it a little bit yourself sometimes where you're feeling more confident as the teacher um, and, and other times less so. And certainly, God, the thought of me trying to teach high school maths to any of my kids is, <laughs> uh, is terrifying. Uh, how do you deal with that question of uh, customers of yours who you know uh, need to be effective teachers, but presumably there's a range of experiences in terms of how well they cope with that role? Yeah, well, I think the older, most people feel fairly confident with primary school. So it's not really until you get to high school that um, we get this sort of crisis of, of, you know, we don't know the material, are you smarter than a fourth grader sort of thing. <laughs> um, but what we do today, because there are so many people coming into homeschooling, like we've seen a huge surge since COVID as well, um, we... We teach parents how to teach or you're more of a coach and a mentor and as Rebecca said, you know, they don't see themselves as like now I'm a teacher, now I'm a parent. It's It all sort of morphs into the same thing and you're just sort of the educator of your child in all things. You teach them how to, you know, eat their food properly or, you know, how to clean their room and mm. you also teach them the other things. So um, with resources like Hours. Um, but th there's DIY resources as well. You know, you can buy a chemistry book um, or you can buy a, a history book. You can buy those things and they are the the teacher. The book is the teacher and you are just the mentor and helping them and, and you learn along with your kids. I mean, I didn't, I was really shocked when I found out that um, Egypt was in Africa when I was teaching my kids geography. And I'm like, oh, you're kidding. I never knew that. And uh, so, you know, a lot of the times I didn't even know the subject and we would get it and we would learn it together. So uh, you just be become, um, it, you improve your own education as you home educate your kids. Indeed, indeed. Thanks very much, uh, Michelle. Um, look, time is getting away from us a little bit. I just want to come back to uh, Rebecca English and ask, do you have a sense, Rebecca, that given the mass sort of forced experiment on remote learning, that that, that experience has changed anything that was known about remote learning with the much smaller sample sizes that happened? Or was it more just confirmation of the existing research about how to do it well? I think sadly, we had a really unique opportunity to look at education and say, is this what it we want to do? Is this what it means to be an educated Australian in the 21st century? 
And we kind of didn't. We didn't think about it. We didn't look at it. You know, parents were like, woohoo, school's back. Let's chuck them back. Or schools were like, or parents were like, mm, actually, this was great. I'm going to keep going. I feel like the, the, the issue for me was that a really pertinent opportunity, a really, you know, exciting opportunity was missed and we didn't have that conversation. And I think, you know, teachers are leaving the profession in droves, parents are leaving. Maybe we need to have a broader societal level conversation about what it means to be educated now and whether what we're doing, this industrial model, is fit for purpose in the 21st century. So that, Julian, is my, like, pushing my barrow right there. <laughs> well, that's all right. Seems like a pretty good barrow to be pushing. Uh, Dr. Rebecca English, thanks very much for your participation on the roundtable today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And a final comment um, from you, Fiona Webster, Principal of the Virtual School Victoria. Have you got a barrow you'd like to give a quick push before we finish up the roundtable? Uh, not so much a barrow, <laughs> but I would just like to give a shout out to our um, staff and students in flood affected areas, yeah, particularly those, those kids who are going into VCE exams this week and, and facing those additional pressures. So just, you know, our thoughts are with them. Thanks very much, uh, Fiona Webster, Principal of Virtual Schools Victoria. And a final comment from you, uh, Michelle Morrow, veteran of uh, homeschooling for kids and now founder of myhomeschool.com. Uh, I just want to encourage parents that, you know, it's definitely doable and, you uh, if you hear of failed homeschool stories, it's often um, the unusual as well. There's so many of my peers that have incredible success stories. All my kids went to university at 16. They're all employed. You know, at the end of next year, two will have masters. One's a doctor. The other one's an entrepreneur. So, and they're not unusual stories. You think, hear those all the time. I think I want to send my kids to be to be educated at your place, Michelle Morrow. That sounds like a pretty good track record. But thanks very much for speaking with us on the roundtable today. And that's all we have time for on the roundtable. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Julian Morrow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.